try that. No, there we go. I just used the switch. That's how it works. So. I should clarify, Brendan was the one that was um, battling the, the torrents. I was just in the passenger seat. So um, all, all thanks to, to Brendan for, for doing that this morning. Um, thank you so, so much for having me. It, it's a strange introduction to someone, isn't it? There's two things you know about me. I spray paint cars and write books about kicking people out of church. Um, the CV kind of writes itself there, doesn't it? So if you are a pastor or a leader, though, I've got the verses that you need if, um, you know, you've got those kinds of people in here. I'm sure none of you are that person, though. So. Um, we are going to deal with a, a fairly, I, I wouldn't say naughty, I'd say a landmine of a passage, actually. Um, this is a nightmare. Um, 1 Corinthians 5. I, just a quick survey. Has anyone ever heard a sermon preached out of 1 Corinthians 5? Just a quick survey. One, I'd love to hear the notes of that one. Anyone ever had the guts to try to preach from it? Looking at the front row here. Smart people. Smart people. So, yes, I am the sucker this morning that's going to take this one on. No, this is, this is one of those passages where you kind of think, I wish Paul didn't put this in here. This, this really doesn't lend itself to, um, you know, the loving Jesus and friendly gospel. It's, you know, when they're saying, hand a person over to Satan. So I, I had to modify your theme a little bit just to fit the topic of what I'm going to do this morning, because the right kind of difference, the good kind of difference is, is it great? That, that's awesome. Um, and so for every other week, very applicable. But for this one, it's the question of what do you do with a person who is different in the wrong kind of way? Uh, how do you address that kind of a person? And Paul has a lot of that going on in Corinth, uh, unfortunately. But there's one case in particular that he, uh, that he needs to address. And um, yeah, it's, it's a landmine. It's an absolute landmine. But uh, what I want to do this morning, I don't want to preach. I don't want to, I don't want to sort of you know, give you the three-point motivational sermon because nothing in this passage lends itself to anything remotely to do with anything motivational. Um, in fact, I hope that there's nothing that comes of this in any practical way, and there certainly will not be an altar call at the end of the <laughs> message. Let me make that really clear because um, that could be a mess. So we won't go there. How I'm going to end this sermon, I don't even know yet. We'll just see where we go. Where, where the spirit leads. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is one of those difficult passages. And so I don't want to try to preach. I just want to go through this passage verse by verse as quickly as I can. I've got 35 minutes. I won't make that a Pentecostal 35 minutes. Um, we'll just get through it and just look at what's actually going on. Uh, this is one of those passages that is very difficult to get right and very easy to get wrong. And when we get it wrong, people get hurt unnecessarily. And people have been hurt in the past because of this passage being misapplied. And so we need to be so careful with this. But we need to take seriously the fact that it's in Scripture. It's here. It's been left in for a reason. And it has a lot of insight to offer us in our ministry. And so with a right understanding, it's a very powerful tool that we have. But at the same time, it can be very destructive. And so what I want to do is just, just focus on the text, and I'll let you do the application as necessary going forward, um, at which point I will not be here to see that. Um, that's, that's your problem, so. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you have your phones, click on 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look at this chapter. Paul kicks off. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality amongst you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even amongst pagans. That is not a good thing to have said about you. Even the worst people on the planet wouldn't do what you guys are doing. 
That's not a good start for these poor Corinthians. But anyway, he says, For a man has his father's wife. We're going to spend a bit of time just in this first verse because this really sets the tone for everything that's coming. This is the whole situation. And the thing about dealing with a passage like this is, particularly in terms of application, we need to make sure that we're actually understanding what was first going on in that passage. Because what we're dealing with here is a very specific situation. And you know it's specific because Paul only deals with one particular person. There's one person doing this. This isn't just a universal practice. One particular person is acting in a way that is intolerable even amongst the pagans. And so what is he doing? Well, Paul says, this man is having his father's wife. Now, we'll start with the having. This is a present tense participle for those Grammar Nazis that go, yes, I understand what he means by that. So this is a present tense participle. What this is indicating is an ongoing behavior that this man is doing. So this isn't just something that happened in the past and we've dealt with and we're sorry. No, this is something that is continually happening. And the having here is a euphemism. This is the way you talk about that topic when the kids are in the room. This is what parents do when the kids, you know, when the Honey, when the kids are in bed, you want to, you know, you know. It's that type of language. Now, the NIV translators didn't assume much of your ability to pick up on a euphemism, so they clarified that he's having sex with his father's wife. So, just in case you did have any curiosity about what's actually happening here. But he's very specific in his description. He says that he's having his father's wife. Now, you go, that seems like a pretty elaborate way to say his mum. But he's not talking about his mum, otherwise he would have said his mum. He's saying here, this man is having his father's wife, which is specifically talking about his stepmother. Now, that's weird. It's awkward. It's um, a pretty unusual... Well, 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 think about it, actually, in the ancient world, it probably would have been a pretty common scenario... Uh, the thing to remember with the ancient world is that most women die by about the age of 30. Uh, men didn't get much better. They lived to the age of 40 on average. The reason why women died so much younger was because they typically died in childbirth. So 30 to, 40, 30 to 50% of women will die in childbirth. That's just a fact. And so when a man marries a wife, it's very common for him to lose his first wife, second wife, sometimes even his third wife. And so he'll remarry, but of course he won't remarry a woman his wife's age or his ex-wife, his widow's age or his deceased wife's age because those women are either married or they're dead. And so he's going to marry another younger woman, much younger than himself, and in a situation like this, probably somebody much closer to his son's age. So it's gross, it is, it's, it's bad, but this is the reality of what we're dealing with here. And so we're dealing with a really specific situation of a young man who is in an active relationship with his father's wife. And now the way that Paul seems to describe the situation would suggest that the father is still around. It's, there's clues to this later on, but it seems to suggest that this is an ongoing relationship with his stepmother while his father's still around. Now you go, that is gross. I mean, I can't imagine what family dinner would be like in that type of family but like it's bad and none of us would do it I hope none of us would do it but none of us would do that but what's the issue here like what why is it so bad 
that even a pagan wouldn't tolerate it. I mean, if you know anything about Greeks and Romans, when it comes to sexuality, everything's on offer. There is no bounds for Greeks or Romans when it comes to sex. So why would even they not tolerate this? Well, there has to be more to it than just a moral issue. And when we look into these cultures, we realize, actually, this is far more serious. Well, when we look at the Jewish law, looking specifically at the Old Testament, the Jews are pretty clear about this. Leviticus 18 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Again, using that same language, not your mother, your stepmother. It is your father's nakedness. And Leviticus 20 says the same thing. So you go, okay, that makes sense because the Jews considered anything outside of a monogamous marriage sexual immorality. They had no issue. There was nothing allowed outside of that context. Now, that's interesting because that would indicate to us that this particular person would not have been a Jew. There's Jews and there's Gentiles in this Corinthian church. This would not have been a Jew because no Jew in their right mind would do that. We're dealing here with a Gentile. But Paul says even the Gentiles wouldn't put up with this. So what's going on there? Well, when we look at Roman law, we get a clue. Remembering that Corinth was a Roman colony. Corinth lived according to Roman law. They used the same Roman legal system as what Rome did and loyal to Rome. And so Roman law was the law of the land in a city like Corinth. This is what Roman law has to say about this. I cannot marry a woman with whom my father lived in concubinage, for she occupies to some extent the position of a stepmother. Certain authorities understand a stepmother to be the wife of the father. An adopted son cannot marry the widow of his natural or adoptive father. Where his father has had several wives, he cannot marry any of them. So even if the father's not around anymore, he still can't marry the ex. Augustus decided that I cannot marry a woman of whose my mother has been betrothed to me, for she has occupied a position of my, step, of my mother-in-law. Again, in the case of males, the crime of incest, although more serious in its nature, is ordinarily treated less severely than that of adultery, provided the incest has been committed through an illegal marriage. Incest committed by means of an unlawful marriage is ordinarily excused on account of sex or age, or even after separation, if it takes place in good faith and a mistake is alleged, and the more readily if no one appears to prosecute. So the thing to understand about Roman law is that you would only ever have to go to court if someone pressed charges, and it would be up to the prosecution to actually take you to court. There was no DA, there was no sort of state prosecution that would take you to court anyway. The victim would have to take the person to court. So if nobody did that, they're like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. There's nothing to see here. And so in a case of just incest, where maybe an accident's happened, well, I don't have to get an accident, but anyway, where it doesn't seem to be, you know, an intentionally vicious sort of situation, look, if no one presses charges, we're okay. But if adultery is committed at the same time as incest, for instance, with a stepdaughter, a daughter-in-law, or a stepmother, the woman shall also be punished, for this will take place even where adultery was not committed. When you add adultery to it, in other words, the father is still alive, now we have a problem. This is a real problem. And so the fact that Paul's saying that even the pagans wouldn't tolerate this would indicate that this father is still alive. 
So what we're literally talking about here is a form of illegal sexuality. The type of sex that even the authorities won't tolerate. What Paul doesn't have in mind here is the couple, the two people out of wedlock who are in a sexual relationship. He deals with that elsewhere. Doesn't mean that that's, that's fine here, but that's not the situation right now. He's not even talking about the situation where maybe somebody is in a sexual relationship with somebody else's spouse. Paul has issue with that, of course, but that's not what we're dealing with here. What we're dealing with is a form of sexuality that if the authorities found out, there's a lot of trouble about to go down. So we're going to put this into a 21st century context. We're talking much more about the pedophile. Much more about the type of sexuality that if the authorities find out, a lot of people are getting in trouble. This is a real problem. This is a significant legal issue that the Corinthians seem to be tolerating. And you say, well, what, why this? Why this situation? Why with your father's wife, the stepmother? Well, the problem for the Romans, the way, reason they take this so seriously, is because it directly threatens the stability of the family. The family is the core unit of any Greek and Roman society. If the family falls apart, the society falls apart. The whole Roman Empire is built on the foundation of the father keeping his family in line, keeping the family in control. And if all of the fathers are doing that for all of the families, then the society stays together. And so if you threaten the family, now we've got problems because that's a threat directly to the Roman Empire. It's almost treason. And so when a son is doing this, directly threatening the honor of his father, directly undermining the structure of that family. That's a real problem. It's a social problem. It's a legal problem. And the scary part about it is that this is happening in the church. Now, the thing to remember is that it's only the, the person who's guilty doing this is a member of the church, but quite obviously the woman and the father are not. Otherwise, Paul would have dealt with all of them. He only deals with the son. In other words, the father and the stepmother aren't even part of the Corinthian community. This isn't something happening in-house. This is one of your members is doing something outside of the church, but it's still an immediate threat to us. Because, of course, if the authorities turn up, the excuse of, oh, yeah, yeah, he was doing it, but it was somebody outside the church, that doesn't work. You knew about it. You knew about it and did nothing. We had a situation, I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and we had a situation where there was a young girl in our group, maybe 14 at the time, and unknown to us, she confessed to one of the leaders, one of the girls in the group, she would have been maybe 18, 19, Confessed to her, she said that my, her karate instructor and her were in a sexual relationship. Oh, uh, sorry. She started by saying, can you keep a secret? Yes, there's a little leadership lesson. When someone starts with that, your first answer is no. No. <laughs> no. Anyway, 18, 19-year-old girl. It's like, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, you're upset. You need to tell me. Yeah, of course I can keep a secret. Oh, well, here's the situation. 
And now this poor girl was carrying this for months, bound by her own oath that she wouldn't reveal the secret but couldn't carry the guilt of this thing anymore. So eventually she came to my wife who was leading with me and told her the situation. And of course, we, we had to deal with it immediately. Well, the whole thing went down. It was a big court situation. And I, I'll never forget sitting in the detective's office at Penrith for about an hour being interrogated. I, I didn't even know the situation. I didn't even know when she talked to this girl. The minute she talked to our leader, our leader talked to my wife, we dealt with it. But this detective was looking for anything to make sure that we didn't, weren't implicit in this in any way, shape, or form, even though it had nothing to do with our church. Paul says, you have this guy around, it's guilt by association. This is a real problem. Then Paul turns around in verse 2 and he says, and you're arrogant. Now I can imagine at this point Paul's head is just about to explode. Like the, the pitch of his voice is, I'm hearing that there's sexual immorality, and of a kind the pagans will tolerate, and it's with a stepmother, and you're arrogant. Now his head just about to blow up and brain blowing everywhere. This is, this, he, Paul is furious. Because the problem isn't even the guy doing it. You'll deal with him in a moment. Paul's problem is with the Corinthians that are putting up with it. That's the real problem. He says, you're arrogant. Literally in the Greek, you are puffed up with pride. In practical terms, what that means is the church was still boasting about this man. Now, the thing to understand with the ancient world is that you only ever boast about a person of high status. You never, ever boast about a person of low status. That doesn't work. You only boast about a person of high status because a high status person typically fills the role of a patron. In a world without any social benefits, you, re you need the elites, you need the wealthy to provide those social needs, but in return, what that person gets is praise. I'll build you a temple, and in return, you literally sing my praises. You put a big inscription across that temple saying that I was the one who built this from my own generosity, but for the rest of the time that I'm here, you'll be boasting about how great I am. This is how the whole society worked. And so in a situation like this in Corinth, what we can assume is this is a high-status person who is providing some sort of patronage for the church. And the form that very likely would have taken would have been, hey, come and meet in my house. Come and meet, have, you, have your church service at my place. For this small group, there's, there would have been lots of house churches around Corinth. One of them would have been hosted by this guy. And in return, what he gets is praise. Our patron does this for us. What does your patron do? Our guy's the best. Sure, there's that thing with his stepmom, but yeah, look, hey, whatever. Because the other thing to keep in mind is that if you disrespect your patron, that's really bad on you. The blowback, all of that's on you. You do not disrespect a high-status person. That is the last thing you do in this society. You would rather put up with anything than disgrace a patron. So the Corinthians are in a bit of a tight spot. We're bound by social convention that we can't call this guy out. At the same time, by the same social convention, we have to praise him, even though we know that what he's doing is really bad. The problem for Paul is 
They chose the former, not the latter. They didn't want to call him out. They weren't ready to call this guy out and say, oh, we don't care if you're giving us a house, we won't tolerate this. No, no, we prefer the house. We prefer the support. Paul says, are you kidding? Honestly, are you guys even saved anymore? He asks this in the next chapter. Are you even Christians anymore? The fact that you would tolerate this kind of behavior. He carries on verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from amongst you. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit, and could go a different way, could be the spirit of the community, may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that's the part, we talk, not yet, no, that's, that's a landmine right there. Okay, that's the part where you just wish you could just quietly erase that from your Bibles and go, here, new Christian, this is what the, the Bible doesn't have, those nasty stuff. We just took that out. That's okay. It's nice, friendly. Because we, we want grace, don't we? We want to be nice. We don't want to offend people. We want people to come. We want people to find grace and salvation and forgiveness. And the question we might ask ourselves is, why couldn't they have just forgiven him? Why couldn't they have just let this thing slide? Maybe challenged him. Maybe just do an altar call every week until this guy finally responds and deals with the sin. You know, that real passive-aggressive thing we do. We don't deal face-to-face. We kind of deal with it through sermons, right? Why couldn't they have just done that? Well, maybe they had, I don't know. But certainly nothing had worked, and they certainly still seem to have been tolerating it. But there's a point we have to ask ourselves. If you've got a person in your church who is actively involved in criminal activity, be it, in this case, sexuality, actively involved in that, and you know this person is doing this, he knows that he is an immediate threat to you in every legal sense, and yet continues in this behavior, knowing that he's a threat, knowing that his very presence there is a threat to all of you. Remember the thing about the Romans too. Um, The Romans had these things called crosses. They don't deal with things with fines. They deal with with, through crosses. They're very serious about how they deal with this kind of behavior. This guy is still turning up every week, knowingly threatening his community. Here's my question to you, honestly. Do you really think this guy is a Christian? I mean, truly, do you think this guy is a Christian? I would have to say no. Paul says, hand this person over to Satan. I I do wonder about this this command, this instruction. And I kind of wonder if there's like a ministry that we're, we're, we're neglecting in our church, like, I guess it would be the door welcomer's job. Like, you know, you just sort of do a scan of the room. Sorry, there's uh, Satan's waiting at the door for you. Just let me just escort you out. You know, just shh, just don't make a fuss about it. Satan's there. He'll take you back where you belong. Uh, I don't know. I don't, maybe you guys are thinking about that. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. See, my suspicion here is that this guy is absolutely not a Christian. And he's acting in a way that is directly threatening his community. The question we have to ask is, how much of that are we willing to tolerate? How much of a threat to the community are we willing to tolerate for the sake of grace or not offending or maybe just losing one person? 
See, for Paul, this is the real concern. Paul's concern is maybe in part for the individual. Hand this person over to Satan. Well, what, what does he mean by that? Well, if a person is not a Christian and they're not even wanting to be a Christian, and they're actively working against Christ's values, that person by default is a servant of Satan. They're part of Satan's kingdom. They're not part of Christ's kingdom, and the only other option you have is Satan's kingdom. So Paul is saying, just give this person back where he belongs. Give him back to his master. He's not about to change. He doesn't want to change. Give him back to where he belongs. Get him out of your church. Because whilst ever he's here, he's a threat. You're all under threat. So Paul goes on, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Is the tension that every church wrestles with. It's keeping on one hand, the individual, and grace, and love, and acceptance, and tolerance. But on the other hand, it's keeping in, in, in hand the community, the group, the everybody. And the minute we lose sight of the group and only focus on the individual, this is the, th- this is the risk we run. When we stop, when we lose sight of everyone sitting in this room right now, we just focus on the new, we'll put up with you because we don't want to offend you, even if you're a risk to everybody else in this room. Then we've lost our balance in ministry. We've lost our balance as a church. This is the tension. And so Paul's solution quite clearly is the guy's not a Christian, send him where he belongs. My concern right now is you. Not just the threat that he poses, but that as a community, you would tolerate this. Because here's the other thing that happens. When you have a person of prominence, or a person like this in a position of prominence, a position of leadership, which this guy would have been in, everyone knows what this guy's doing, and yet he's still been accepted, he's still been welcomed, he's still been endorsed, and even praised... What does that say to everybody else about his behavior? It's okay for him, so it's okay for you. See, because just a little bit of leaven gets through the whole thing. And that's all it takes. Just one person can ruin the whole thing. I told you this wasn't an easy message. (laughs) I may not be invited back. That's all right. I said my piece. So here's a, th- here's a scenario. Maybe it's not the pedophile, and I pray to God it's not. What if it's the young guy coming into your youth group who's only there to seduce girls? Oh, well, you know, flirt to convert. That's an old chestnut. Maybe just let them stay and hopefully expose them to enough Jesus, and maybe he'll, he'll convert his ways. No, what if he's just there to seduce the girls? How many girls have to be seduced before we do something about it? Oh, well, it's not illegal. No, it's not illegal. In fact, outside of the Christian context, that dude is a hero. In here, that guy's a wolf. And so I don't have an altar call, and I don't even have a proper way to end the sermon. Um, because how do you do end a sermon like this? But maybe I'll just throw out a couple of questions for, for thought. 
how do we respond to a threat to our community, particularly from a quote-unquote member? Would we be, how much are we willing to tolerate in exchange for their benefits? Or even just at the risk of offending someone? I'll leave you with those thoughts.